What a rich word. Well, this has been a rich gathering already, and because of that, it's going to be a short, it's going to be a short word to sermon at this morning, so fear not. But it's an important one. It always is. It's always the Lord's word. It's always an opening of his, of his very breath. Um, but uh, this is the text that Austin just read, Isaiah 61, verses, we read one through four, but verses one and two, the, just the first line from verse two, is the text that our Lord and Savior who became a slave to set us free, chose to inaugurate his ministry. He went back to his hometown, and we'll get to this in just a second in more detail. He went back to his hometown at the beginning, or close to the beginning of his ministry, and read this text and said, yeah, that's me. Game time. So this is the text that he chose to inaugurate his ministry. And what is the first thing as he comes on the scene in power after having come out of the wilderness, being tested, and for the first time in history as a human, he passed the test of temptation. Unlike the first Adam, the second Adam passed the test. He's clothed with power, clothed with the spirit with power. And the first thing that he chooses to signal and to characterize his ministry of freedom is what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Brian Blount writes this. He says, many people disqualify, this is going to be a, this might blow your mind, so I just want you to stay with me, okay, for just a few minutes, and then we're done. Many people disqualify themselves from the Jesus style of ministry, uh, in other words, from a ministry that looks like Jesus' ministry, that looks like what he read here about seeing people set free from oppression and bondage, inside and out, blind eyes open, people healed, freedom, okay, um, they disqualify themselves from this style of ministry because they think, well, he could do that because he was Jesus. He was God in the flesh. And indeed he was, so we profess and so we believe, and he is. He remains the God-man in heaven representing those of us who, who look to him by faith. Um, he was the word through whom all things were created. Of course he could raise a dead girl to life. Of course he could do, use mere words to halt a storm. Of course he could cause a blind person to see. God could do anything. But, Blount says, Philippians 2, so Philippians is a letter uh, past the Gospels that Paul wrote um, to the church at Philippi in the ancient world. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says that Jesus, quote, though he was in the form of God, this is from the ESV, the translation we use, though he was in the form of God, Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, and scholars have written tomes, Books and books and books and books on this one word. In the Greek, it's kenosis. He emptied himself. What does that mean? Did he cease to be God? Certainly not. But he left something behind in heaven. What was it? Okay, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Blount goes on and finishes, Jesus never ceased being God, and yet he voluntarily suspended the independent exercise of his divine attributes so that he might live a fully human life. If Jesus did not heal the sick, here's the question I want you to focus in on, and we'll talk for a few minutes on. If Jesus did not heal the sick and raise the dead out of his own divine power, how did he do it? And Blount says this, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say in John 5, 19? He said, I, I can do nothing, I can do nothing by his own choice, by his own decision to empty himself 
and to come and to leave heaven and to come down and to be born under the law as a human in weakness, fully God, but fully man, okay? He says, I can do nothing but what I see the Father doing. And I can say nothing but what I hear the Father saying. The question is, how? And the answer is the same. By the power of the Holy Spirit who connected him to his Father who was in heaven while he was on earth. It's right here in the text that Austin just read. It's right, it's so much under our nose that I've missed it for 40 years. How does the text start that he chooses to characterize his ministry? He says, that's me, I fulfill this. It starts this way. The text that he uses to start his ministry begins, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And listen to this language. Because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the text goes on. Simply put, it's the spirit who empowers Jesus to do these things. It is because and only because Jesus has the spirit upon him that he has been anointed or soaked by the spirit that he's able to do these things, to proclaim liberty and to bring it and to break chains and to open eyes and to say the kingdom is here. Okay, the king is here, the kingdom is here. Remember, again, like I just said briefly a second ago, Jesus is called by Paul in Romans 5, the second Adam. Adam simply is the Hebrew, it's the normal Hebrew word for man, the second Adam, the second man. He is showing us what Adam, the first Adam, was supposed to look like. He brought all the things that God created the world to be. As the true man filled with the life, the presence, the very spirit of the living God. Um, We see Jesus take up the scroll in Luke 4 and, and read this text, and then he assumes it. He puts it on like a man putting on a robe. He fills it with meaning. He says, yeah, that's me. But what comes before this in Luke? Well, in short, a bunch of people get filled by the Spirit in the first two chapters. Over and over again, Luke says, and the Holy Spirit came upon this person, and the Holy Spirit filled this person. But then we get to chapter three, and John the Baptist says of Jesus, he will baptize, he says, I'm baptizing you with water, but what? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form. And then chapter four, verse one of Luke, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then 4.14, and Jesus returned, what? In the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then he inaugurates his ministry, steps into his hometown, and opens up Isaiah 61 at the scroll and says, his first words are, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. How am I gonna do these things? Because the Spirit is upon me, and he has anointed me to do all these things. Okay, what's your point, Ince? Well, Luke wrote Luke, mind blower. We know this. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, but what else did Luke write? Acts. Okay, you guys are with me today. Good. He's the only gospel writer that wrote a part two, as it were. Luke wrote the Acts. So the best way to read Luke is to just read Luke and then keep going to Acts. And Luke starts the book of Acts by saying, in the first book, he's talking about Luke, He starts Acts, Acts 1 verse 1, Luke says, in the first book, meaning my gospel of Luke, I wrote to you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And almost all commentators and scholars agree. What he's implying here very strongly is that in this book, O Theophilus, my friend, is about what Jesus continues to do and to teach 
wait a minute, Jesus at the beginning of Acts goes up to heaven. He's ascended. And what we see is his people, his church that have believed on him. Jesus is doing and teaching these things? Yes. Because in Acts 2, what happens? They are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them just like he came upon Jesus, had come upon Jesus in Luke 4. And what, is, what do they do in Acts? The exact same things that Jesus did in Luke. Open blind eyes. People get raised from the dead. People get set free spiritually and physically because the kingdom of God has come because Christ is reigning. He has conquered on the cross. He has given himself over for us and become sin in our place. He has made peace with anyone who wants to come uh, uh, to God through him. And he now reigns at the right hand of the Father. And then he pours out his spirit on anyone who will look to him as Lord and Savior. And they become, as it were, little Christs, okay? Filled with his spirit, clothed to do the very things he did because he's still doing them, Luke says. He's still doing and teaching, just like Jesus did. What is the church? We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Um, And so, what does Jesus say in Acts 1.8? He says, but to his disciples, right before he ascends, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Acts 28 ends, as we were talking about this morning in the nine o'clock equipping class, Acts 28 ends kind of like an ellipsis, like a dot, dot, dot. There's no decisive or conclusive ending. It's not like, and that's the story of the church, friends. That's not the way it ends. It ends with, uh, with Paul the apostle locked up in a prison, continuing to minister to, any, to all comers. He's under house arrest and any, he has free access. Anyone can come to him and he teaches at the nerve center of the Mediterranean world, Rome, about Christ and his gospel and the wonderful freedom and chain breaking he came to bring and his Holy Spirit power for two years. And basically Luke is saying, and that work shall continue until Christ returns. Jesus will continue to do and to teach from heaven through his body on earth. How? with the spirit of the living God upon them, just as it was on Jesus. Um, zooming in to two things on this text, and then we'll close, okay? Um, Isaiah 61, verse 2, what does it say? Jesus came what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's so much wrapped up in this. I, I'm really shortchanging this text because of time and because this is the word God's given for us today. But... Um, Suffice it to say, any Jew who reads this immediately sees and, re- and hears Jesus saying, um, I have come to proclaim the favorable, the year of the Lord's favor, or the favorable year of the Lord, understands that Jesus is using, using the year of Jubilee language. And what that is, there's a lot to it, but what it is is every 50 years in the law, there was a year called the year of Jubilee when, in short, every debt was canceled, every slave was emancipated that was one of God's children, and everybody was put right again. And Jesus says, I've come, that, that all was temporary, and it actually, if we look at our history, wasn't practiced by the Jews. They didn't set slaves free. They didn't forgive debts. Jesus comes and says, I'm the jubilee bringer. I'm the joy bringer. I'm the chain breaker. I'm the one who's going to get chains put on me that are going to make me sin and put me in hell for all of you who are oppressed, that I might be oppressed, that you might go free. 
Christianity is the exact opposite of trying to do good stuff to please God. Jesus came to take our place, to take our chains upon himself, to become our sin and to die on a cross and to nail it there and to be buried and then to rise again three days later free from that stuff so you could go free and so I could go free. And that's what Jesus said here. The year of the Lord's favor is here because I'm here and I'm the king. Amen. Man, if we can't clap for that, thank you, Jesus. And that's what he says. So he came to bring comprehensive freedom. And we talked last week about even if we are in Christ and we've trusted in him and we, we look to him, we still, all of us, enter back into slavery voluntarily at times through submitting ourselves to impurities and sins. And Paul talks about that in Romans 6. And so the, continu- the life of the Christian is to be one of ongoing and continual repentance, knowing we have a chain breaker. We are considered fully righteous in Christ. Repenting constantly, knowing that we have an advocate before the Father. He's the one who makes us clean, not trying to clean yourself up. Go to Christ, flee to Christ, run to Christ by faith. Um, in Luke 4, Jesus, when he reads this that, that um, Austin read from Isaiah 61, he changes the language. He leaves out a phrase. And he, and he adds a phrase, really interesting. Um, and I don't have time to go into why he leaves out a certain phrase, but I do have, I just want to touch on why he, and if you have the slide, if you don't, it's okay, but there's a slide that shows a ring structure of these two verses from Luke 4, 18 and 19. This is the, the, the main phrase that he adds comes from, stay with me and I'm almost, we're going to close to an end here. It, it comes from the Greek translation. So the Old Testament was written in, Anyone? Yes, Hebrew. Okay, good job. And a little bit in Aramaic, a few chapters, all right? But mainly, if you say Hebrew on a test, you're going to get a 99%. All right. And so the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Right, Jesus read it in Hebrew. But also, he clearly had read it in Greek. There was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the... Oh, nice. That's even more obscure. It's called the Septuagint. Two centuries before Christ came onto the planet, 2,000 years ago, two centuries, in about 200 B.C., there was a Greek translation of the Hebrew done because most Jews, a lot of Jews around the Mediterranean rim had been scattered and had lost their Hebrew language. So it was written so they could read in the Hellenistic diaspora. They, read, they, they, they spoke Greek, they read Greek, so they could read their, their own scriptures. Jesus actually takes a phrase that's only in the Greek translation. And here it is. You can see it on the, on the screen. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Why is Jesus able to do these things? Because the spirit is upon him. What? A, to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the exact text that he preaches. Nothing's taken out. B, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. C, and recovering of sight to the blind. And then you go out to B again. You see that? To set at liberty, those who are oppressed. It, it, it corresponds to the B. Um, and then A, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That proclaim uh, matches the first proclaim. So it goes proclaim, proclaim, liberty, liberty. And then there's this phrase in the middle, C. That's added. That's not in the Hebrew text. And what is it? It's recovering of sight to the blind. We could stay here for the rest of our lives, friends. I could never unpack the fullness of what this means. You who have tasted Christ know in part. We see Jesus in the Gospels. I just want to say a couple brief things. We see him literally opening physically blind eyes, don't we? But there's always a deeper meaning to Jesus' miracles. And another thing that he's saying about what's going to characterize Messiah and what the Spirit upon him is going to do through him is he's going to open up people we are blind from birth to the truth of the living God. We will never come to God on our own. We will never see God. We will never submit to his authority. 
We can't come to him, so he came to us. And Jesus says, I'm here now. I am God. I emptied myself of divinity in a sense. I'm still fully God. I'm fully man. And I'm here to open your eyes so that you might see the living God and come to him. And um, so he comes to break spiritual and physical chains, which is why we as a people want to preach the gospel. And as an extension of that, we want to see people come to life and have their eyes opened in Christ and to see Jesus. But also we want to work to literally see people set free from physical slavery as well as spiritual slavery because we're all born slaves. And Christ came to set us free. So this he's saying is at the center of my ministry, this chain breaking and opening the eyes of not only our eyes, but our hearts. And I want to just say this about this. And then we, and then we run down to a close and a bit of application. And that is this. Think about, it just struck me for the first time this, this week. Think about what he's saying. He said, this is me. I came to open blind eyes. And we see him doing that in the gospels. And we see him doing it in a more spiritual sense with Paul of Tarsus. And Paul's blinded, but then he sees Jesus. When Jesus heals a blind person, what's the first person that blind that what's the first thing that blind person sees when he opens his eyes or she opens her eyes? Jesus. Jesus Christ. The first thing that person sees when they open their eyes, when they're restored, is Jesus. And I'm I think this is what, and this is what I'm choosing to say for us today, God has for us, is at the center of Jesus' ministry. Okay? He came that we might behold him. He came that we might see him as he is. He shows us the heart of the Father. Some of us have pictures of a father who's angry with us, who's hard to please. Hebrews tells us that the heart of God the Father for you is fully expressed and unpacked in the person of Jesus Christ. The heart of the Father for you loves you so much that he sent his most precious son, his only son, to be crushed that you might become a son or a daughter. And he wants you to behold that in him and to see Jesus Christ and to love him and to chase after him and to know he has come after you and that he is worth everything and all else besides and to leave that other stuff. And guess what? When we see him and behold him and follow him and worship him and love him and crave him and pray for a craving for him and a zeal for him and a hunger for him, he will give it to us and what? All else besides seek the king and his kingdom and all these things, what? She'll be added to you. He is the joy of our desiring, even if we don't know it. And for our eyes to be open to see him. Now let me close the loop and finish. Let me close the loop and finish here. Um, Notice the language, again, back to the text in Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord God, it's right here in the text. It's so under our noses that we miss it. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me upon me. Brian Blount again says this. He says, the Holy Spirit both lives in the believer and comes on the believer. We need both functions of the Spirit. First of all, in the believer, the Holy Spirit lives in us. He indwells us if we look to Christ. He fills us with the life of Jesus Christ, with the life of God, brings us from death to life, and he lives inside of us, and he signs and he seals us as his own, and that will never change. It's not up to you. It's done. Secondly, though, Jesus had the Spirit in him, but it said the Holy Spirit came, not in him, upon him in order to do these things that he did, to see blind eyes open, to see people set free, okay? So we need both the indwelling presence of the Lord to seal our salvation and to save us and draw us to God, but we also need his endowing, his clothing, his coming on or upon us in order that we might have power for witness, in order that our 
that he might continue to do and teach through us, just as he did in his, through his church. You know, in Acts, if you read the book of Acts, over and over again, these people who were Christians, they were born again, they were alive, they had the spirit in them. What does it say over and over again? It says that they prayed. What happened before Pentecost? Acts 1. He says, just go wait and pray. What are we doing Tuesday nights? We're going and we're waiting and we're praying to God. Lord, fill us, come upon us. They prayed and they asked for the living God to send his spirit to come upon them. When the spirit came upon them, they went out in power and started preaching the gospel and seeing the Lord heal and act and break chains, right? Over and over again in the book, it happens again and again. Are these people getting saved over and over again? No, the spirit of the living God is coming upon them just as it did on Jesus to fill them and to equip them for regular ministry as normal and full and restored human beings that we might hear on Sundays in our parish gatherings, um, as we go to the mall, as we go to the HEB, as we go to the shops, as we go to our kids to school, as we go to work, that we might continually as a people together and individually pray that, the, that we might know about this category, that Christ could not, he voluntarily could not do these things that characterize his ministry, but that the Holy Spirit came upon him. And then Luke says, he's still doing the same thing today through his church, that we might know it is enough to have the Holy Spirit in us to be saved, but we need him to come on us for power, for effective witness, and to see chains broken and people set free and healed and to walk in the gifts that he laid his life down for. And church, now is the time for this word because it's our four-year anniversary and this is our founding text. And it's such a text of freedom and it's Freedom Sunday, but it's also a word for us right now at this nanosecond in our history as a people of God because I think for the first time we are ready to receive it. We are seeing the Lord coming in new ways and begging him to come upon us that we might walk in the gifts that he laid his life down and took it up again to give to us. And so that is what I'm asking, that this area, and it doesn't end with, this text does not end with just people being set free. It does involve that. But then what goes out into verse four of Isaiah 61? The environment around Messiah. The environment, excuse me, around the people that he sets free changes. Whole cultures and civilizations are restored. As people are restored, the environments that they enter, their workplaces, their schools, the shops they inhabit, the places they go, the neighborhoods they live in, the Galleria, the East End, Brazewood, the city of Houston, and because the city of Houston, the nations, it changes. Broken walls are built up again. Whole cities and civilizations are restored because of what this Messiah came to do and bring. And that's what God's called you to. And that's what God's called me to. And that's what God's called us to. He's already given this this geography. Now let's go take it. And let's be, beg the Lord to clothe us, clothe, uh, clothe us with his spirit because the king is reigning. Because the king came and lived and died in our place and rose in our place. And he's seated in the heavenlies and he's reigning. And he is reigning through us now and his reign is going out and he will one day return. Until then, it's time to get to work. And so I just thank the Lord for this moment in time. I thank the Lord for what he's doing in you. I thank the Lord for this word. I bless you in Jesus' name. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you save for the first time today? Those who are outside of you who are dead, would you open their blind eyes that they might see? Would you cause us to continue to be opened up to more and more of who you are, that our chief desire would be to behold you? 
that you would be our fixation and our fascination and you would be our wonder and our, and our great desire, Lord Jesus, and that you would come upon us and that we would beg you and beg you and beg you that you might come on us, that you might equip us for power, for effective witness to Jesus Christ and what he's done in the gospel, that people might be set free and that we might be continually set free. Would you do it, Lord? We ask it in Jesus' name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.